Hello and welcome back to the Forgotten Football Podcast. I'm your host, as per usual, Rory Bryce, and I'm joined this week by Phil O'Rourke. Hi guys, it's uh, it's also a pleasure for me to to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation and uh, let's have some fun. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I've been excited to get this episode done for, for a wee while now. Obviously, Santa, we were speaking before Christmas and, and everything like that, so it's been a long time coming. But before we kick things off, guys, how have things been? You've been going to any games recently? Any football collectors markets going on how things been with you over the last few weeks or so um i mean i've got a few trips booked uh copenhagen uh bruges uh i'll be also going over to uh london in the next two weeks to see aldershot one of our uh you know, favorite clubs. Uh, obviously, we had um Pete on uh, and uh, another podcast, and Alan who featured in the book. So I feel that it's uh, you know go over and have a look. I think they're playing Bromley, who are actually doing well in the National League at the moment. Uh, I think they're second at the moment. I'll try not doing too badly either. They're just outside the playoff spots. So I'm hoping for a, a decent uh, result there. But uh, yeah, that's my plans and anyway for 2024 uh, so far. But uh, that's early in there. But um yeah, so plenty of football. And of course, think Pat's uh the, the League of Ireland season will start back in February, kicking off with Galway away. Uh I don't know whether I'll be able to go to that because I could be somewhere else, but uh I'll definitely be at some games. Good. Happy days. Vincent, what about you? Well, actually I'm leaving for Italy tomorrow. I'm going to uh, Fiorentina against Udinese. Uh the week after Tuesday, I'm going to Excelsior away for the cup match, FC Groningen or Excelsior against FC Groningen. That Friday, I'm going away against FC Emmen, and that Monday, I'm going away to Young Ajax against FC Groningen. Nice. Busy, busy. And finally, Santi, what about yourself? How have things been? Obviously, am I right in saying that it's off-season in Argentina at the moment? Things don't start back for another month or so? Yes. Uh, right now, um, we're kind of in the in the pre-season, looking towards the, the following Liga Profesional, which starts in February. So right now, we're in the middle of the... Of of the transfer window, um, there are some uh, closed doors, uh, friendly games. I think uh, the the final game of this of last season came like the week before Christmas. Uh, there was the the final of the Copa de la Liga, which was surprisingly contested between Rosario Central and uh, Platense. Rosario Central won, won the game, and then River won kind of like a super cup between the the winner of the Copa de la Liga and the Liga Profesional, which was River, of course. They won. And I think the last game that I actually went to was uh, the quarterfinals of that Copa de la Liga uh, tournament between River and Belgrano, which, as you may know, are two uh, two teams that have met in some more uh, pressing circumstances in the past. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a kind of a, a really it was a cracking game actually in Cordoba. It was a it was a real a real a real contest and River won it right at the death uh, to qualify for the semifinals where they eventually lost to Rosario Central, the eventual winners. Brilliant. And I suppose that's a, a good starting point, really. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, what you do as, as your profession and what you do as a, a hobby as well? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, right now, um, I'm basically a journalist. Uh, I, I've studied uh, communication back back home in Buenos Aires. This is where I'm, I am right now. Uh, and for for a while, I've been doing different uh, gigs. You know, both uh, written and also kind of uh, audiovisual stuff. I've uh, been on a few Copa 90 documentaries, which they they filmed here. They I was for the um, 
But when Boca and River faced each other in the Copa Libertadores final back in 2018, that was for the qualifiers uh, for the 2018 World Cup as well, and for the 2017 Libertadores final as well. Um, and for the last two years, I've been working in uh, for the La Nación newspaper here in Argentina. I've been writing for them. Um, unfortunately, my job has actually allowed me to to go to a few a few games, a few to cover a few matches. Uh, I, I've been able to travel a lot. I've been to the, recently to the Under-20 World Cup here in Argentina. I've covered the national team as well. So I'm, I'm really glad, I mean, for, for all the all the stuff that I've done so far since I'm, I'm only 24, actually. So uh, it's... Uh... Yeah, that's amazing, man. I mean, what, what a scene. You know, that's incredible. Um, sounds like, you know, you're really passionate about it and you really enjoy it as well. And, and that's all part of it. You know, it's mixing your hobby with working. Um, I don't think anyone can ask for much else. I mean, Vincent, um, as our listeners will know, Vincent is a, goes to any fixture that he's able to go to at any point. Um, and he loves doing it. And, you know, it's just amazing to see all these kind of passions come out in different ways. And, and Vincent, I don't think you would trade that for anything. At all because no, it's definitely I, I'm actually jealous of uh, Santi here because he, <laughs> he is from Argentina of course and that's that that passion the, those hinchadas the support it's the best in the world like I, I went to Racing Club against Independiente last October or yeah last October uh, so I want to ask you Santi it was uh, nil to two how was that for you how did you uh, how did you uh, live that game because I was in the Racing end. And it, it was insane. For, for me, it was insane, just the atmosphere. It was nothing like I've ever experienced. But for you, as an independent supporter, like you just told us, you won that game. How was that for you? Well, actually, um, well, you know that there are no away fans in Argentina, unfortunately. That's how it's been for the last 10 years because of some uh, fan violence. Uh, and also because, I mean... Over the years, I think there's been something of a, of an economic factor because big clubs realized that they could fill whole stadiums by themselves, so they realized they don't need away away support. Uh, so I feel like the return of away fans seems harder and harder as the years go by. Um, so I couldn't, of course, go to 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 the game. I, I watched it at work, uh, but it was a great feeling because I mean, Independiente actually played a, a really 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 great game back then. It was a it was a tough. It was a tough fixture as well as most other derbies are, uh, but they did exactly what they needed to do. They were very solid in defense and they were very, very dangerous every time they they got the ball and tried to find spaces on the counter. And that's how they found both of the goals. Uh, and it was a very, very solid performance from an independent side. Which, by the way, um, halfway through last year, they were actually flirting with relegation, which was. Uh, Seriously concerning, seriously concerning, especially for a club as big as Independiente and one which only got relegated less than uh, a bit, a bit more than ten years ago, uh, for the first time ever. So uh, fortunately, Independiente were able to get out of that mess, and uh, that derby win was one of the kind of turning points of the season. Ah, fair enough. And if I'm correct, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, just to. Uh... Yeah, I don't know the word, but just to uh, say how how big the club independent is, the, you won the Copa Libertadores like seven times, right? Yeah, the I mean, the Bindes, they are the, the team that have won, won the most Copa Libertadores with seven, one more than Boca. Uh, but bit of a sleeping giant, are they? A bit of a yeah. Yeah, actually, not only have they last won the Copa Libertadores forty years ago, but in the last thirty years, 
Independiente have only been at the Copa Libertadores three times. Really? Yeah. So it's it's been some really, really, really rough time for Independiente. Almost throughout my lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, like no away, I, I know about the away supporters band, of course, but last time I was there, I did see some away supporters, but it was probably the board and family members, I think. Mm. Yeah, that seems to be the most likely scenario. I mean, there are some games, uh, mostly within other provinces like Rosario and Mendoza and Santiago del Estero, which some away supporters allowed, mostly because it, it's about, it's uh, from small clubs and from other, you know, provinces which are more uh, lenient when it comes to away supports. But when it comes to games in Buenos Aires, that is strictly forbidden. So it must have been some, you know, board members and families and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been, of, of course, I've been to many games in the, in Buenos Aires when I was there. I went to Adrogo Brown against Chacarita as well. Mm. Uh, and at one time we were in the, I don't know if you know, the, do you know the stadium of uh, Adrogo Brown? Uh, I've never been there, but uh, but yeah, I've seen pictures. I'm, I'm not exactly familiar with it, but I, I kind of know where it is. I kind of know what, what it's yeah, like. So, yeah. so, you know, it's not that big. It's just like a family club. And yeah, we were yeah. on the stand there and suddenly there were like 100 guys. And I was like, yeah, you, you guys are not from here. And it turns out, <laughs> turned out they were away supporters from Chacarita, uh, which were going for promotion next time, as you know. And like in uh, the four, after the forty fifth minute, uh, the the police came. They had just arrested him. Like you're not welcome here. Hmm. I mean, un unfortunately, yeah. kind of been going the same way, and well, not not in Glasgow, really, just between Celtic and Rangers. That is, it's not been because of fan violence. It's like a tit for tat kind of thing where, you know, they cut ticket allocations, and then the other team said, "Oh, we we're not going to have any fans." It's a shame, really, because it affects the atmosphere and, and it affects the spectacle. But um, we'll we'll come back and we'll, we'll chat about Vincent Strip a bit later on, um, because I know you've got lots to ask Vincent, and 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 I want you to have your have your moment. But it was a good a good way to start off the episode. Obviously, um, we're here to talk about one club to begin with, and that's Sportivo Palermo. Uh, Phil. If you just want to jump in and tell us how you came across this club and what prompted you to write about them, first of all, because it's they're they're quite obscure. It's quite difficult to find any photos of them, any archived information. You know, they, they did merge with another club quite early on, but they're um yeah, they're, they're they're pretty unknown in terms of other lost football clubs that we've covered. Yeah, I mean, mainly because I kind of I wrote about a Palermo, uh, obviously the Italian club uh, in Italy, and I kind of I kind of wanted to see if there was any kind of connection. I know there is that Italian. Argentinian connection and stuff like that in regards to culture and football. So I wanted to see if there was. Now, I didn't actually find any uh, connection, but maybe Santi might be able to tell us later. Um, but in regards to Sportivo uh, Palermo, you, you're, you're dead right. They were founded in uh, the 18th of May, uh, 1908, which is quite early. And they did, um, uh, they're basically a, a club in the neighbourhood of Palermo, uh, which is how a lot of clubs in Argentina and South America they're, they're, they're basically created or founded because they're from a neighbourhood. Um, but they did uh, um, mer merge with a club called Atlas Club. Uh, Santi, I'm just going to quickly ask you, you know anything about this club, Atlas Club? Because apparently they were a decent uh, amateur team back in the day. Yeah, apparently uh, they have nothing to do with a current club called Atlas, which uh, they currently play in the fourth division and they dress okay. in uh, brown and light blue. They don't have anything to do with them. But as I've been looking, of course, into Sportivo Palermo ahead of this episode, um, apparently they were, this was um, kind of a way to try and get together with several smaller clubs from the, the neighborhood of Palermo, which, by the way, it's a pretty big neighborhood. And right now it's a very kind of a, 
bohemian or kind of hipster neighborhood right now in Buenos Aires. So back then, uh, you know, most uh, clubs found uh, that were founded in the early 20th century, in contrast to the ones founded in the late 19th century, which were mostly founded by railroad workers and immigrants from, from the UK, these clubs from the early 20th century were funded mostly by people from the neighborhoods and people from who were like trying to uh, find uh, some activities to do around the neighborhoods. Most of them were really, really small and really humble. And in this case, which it was a very common practice around clubs in, in, in small, uh, small clubs and neighborhoods to try to get together to straighten, uh, unify their support and unify their uh, kind of uh, activities for, for one club. It's not exactly a case of whether these clubs are big or well-known, it's like they were trying to get together to try and, well, increase their support within the neighbourhood. Yeah, basically, yeah, build their resources and, and pull all... Yeah, I, I kind of find that with a lot of uh, smaller clubs and neighbourhoods and stuff like that kind of said, right, you know what, we need to kind of pull together. and get, I think we, Rory, we kind of touched on it in Iceland a little bit with uh, I, IB and um, POR or POR as they were known. They kind of pulled together and got the resources together and said, look, let's try to take on bigger lads like the, the port sides and stuff like that. So yeah, it, it is quite a common occurrence. I think in Europe, especially in, in South America, a lot of clubs that were from quite large neighbourhoods if there was many clubs, they would often merge again, as yourself and Santi say, just to pull resources. So I, I think it was just a way to pull resources. But as well, in, in Argentina, you've got large communities of migrants from Europe and, and from elsewhere in the Americas as well. Um, and I think that had a part to play as well in terms of the mergers. Again, it probably was just a common pulling of resources so that they could try and, and kind of push ahead with um you know football clubs that showed their identity and where they were from so i think there's probably an element of that to it as well yeah definitely i i, I think it, it could be a cultural thing because we've, we've spoken about this before i won't get too into it but in the uk and stuff like that uh and and even ireland there's not an awful lot of mergers going on whereas in europe south america does seem to be a kind of common thing uh by the way santi i love the way you said bohemian hipster there that's uh, it connects brilliantly into uh, a club over here in Ireland, Bohemian FC, who are quite hipster as well. Uh, we won't get into that. Uh, I can see uh, Vincent laughing. Um, but um, yeah, so basically the club uh, remained at amateur level for quite some time, uh, even after the merger, and played their matches at the Caseros uh, in Buenos Aires. Now, is that it's still a place, Santi, or is that gone altogether? Um. I mean, I mean, try to look at the, the places in which uh, Sportivo Palermo have been playing throughout the history, because despite the fact that they're called Sportivo Palermo, they have not always been playing in Palermo. Actually, they played uh, even outside the, the realms of like the capital of Buenos Aires, uh, which is where they were founded, of course. But uh, seeing that they, are, they have been throughout their history a very, very small club and they've struggled to find a home, it seems like in most cases they um, they have been playing in places which right now they don't exist. Uh, maybe maybe when they, they when you read into their history, it reads kind of like regions in which they play, but not like exact uh, stadiums or pitches in which they play. They actually struggle to find a home for like the fifties and the sixties and the seventies mm. throughout history. Yeah, I mean, in, in their early days, they, they started off obviously in the fourth division. I have down in 1915, uh, the third division 1916, 
uh, the second or the Segunda in 1917 to 19. And then they won the Segunda in 1917 and went up to a thing called the Intermediate Division. Now, is that still a thing? We know that we've spoken about, and obviously I've looked into this like in places like Brazil, Argentina, um, Paraguay and all. It, it, there's been a lot of changes throughout the years in, in the way the format, the leagues and stuff like that. Is that still a thing or, or like what level did they actually get to? Well, I mean, there's been so, so, so many changes. Consider the fact that during the glory days of uh, Sportivo Palermo, which I'm sure you will eventually get, get into, which was during mm. the 1920s, football wasn't still 100% professional in Buenos Aires. That wouldn't happen until 1930, 1931. So uh, you can imagine that there were a lot of different, uh, you know, formats uh, throughout, throughout history and with the tournaments and stuff. So... When we're talking about the Intermedia back then, I think we're referring to the second division uh, or kind of like a, like a bridge between the second and the first division. I mean, things are completely different right now. And I'm mm. sure you will eventually get into it. Uh, but... Uh, i ask you about a bit later on is the current setup within the AFA because there's been a number of changes over the last few years. And I, I very, very loosely follow football in Argentina. You know, I watch the odd game here and there when I can because um, I've always enjoyed it and you know I follow a few accounts in English on Twitter and it seems mad but you know we'll, we'll come on to that a bit later on but as you say Sportivo Palermo kind of started having their glory days around this sort of period of time when um, professionalism was slowly making its way into football in Argentina but, but it just wasn't quite there yet yeah exactly exactly um, I mean, yeah. Look, we're right into the nineteen twenties here, where they did get up to the to the top division. Um, but it was with a merger with another club, uh, Eureka. Uh, they were known as. Uh, do you know anything about them? Uh, they they were only around for a short time, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Actually, they were absorbed by Sportivo yeah. Belgrano, which uh, you you will see throughout the history that Sportivo Belgrano had a lot of mergers and tried to survive by. Uh, getting together with a lot of clubs throughout their history. And in all of those cases, they just absorbed them. They mm. always kept their identity. They always kept their own colors, their own name. Yeah. They just absorbed the clubs they were merging with. And, and it's, it's, that, that's one of the reasons why I picked them, because it's interesting that they weren't always the best club or, or uh, the biggest club, but yet they always seem to absorb the other club and keep their identity, their colors and the name. Why is that? Is it just because the name was... Why is that? Did they have somebody powerful or like... It, it's a it's a weird one. I mean, it, it, it is a weird one. Actually, it might have been kind of their own way to try and get into the first division because yeah. um, when the when the merger happened, uh, they were still in the Intermedia and Eureka. They mm. were occupying that spot in the first division. That's yeah. how they got the promotion. That's actually, yeah. So. Just about to say that they they basically took Eureka's spot without actually gaining promotion. They just kind of said, right, we're just taking a spot, absorbed yeah, them. It's, not, it's something that happens more often in Mexico than Argentina. Yeah, this is what they've done. Uh, in their first season, uh, they came 10th in the first season in 1920 in the top flight. Um, they had the worst away defeat that season. They lost 6-0 uh, to Sportivo Almagro. I don't know if they're still about, are they? There is an Almagro right now, uh, but I don't know if, it, if it's the same club. Actually, right. Almagro are uh, a club that's pretty well supported. They play in the second division. They last played in the first division in, I think, 2005. Something like that, but I don't yeah. think they have a, they they are related to Sportivo Almagro. Right, and now this is where it kind of gets a little bit messy, I suppose. 
at that time in the 1920s, there was two different leagues in Argentina at the time. There was the Argentina de Football, or the Association Argentina de Football, so the AFA, but there was also uh, another league, um, the AAMF, in which two clubs in the middle of the season, Sportivo Almagro and Lanis, uh, both left the AFA and went over. Now, obviously this was back in the 1920s and stuff like that, but what what was it? What was the thinking behind that? Was it a regional thing, or was it just two separate associations back then? Yeah, back then there were two separate associations. There were a lot of debate. There was a lot of debates uh, around professionalism at the time. Mm. Some clubs were uh, more supportive of it; others were not. Actually, some some of the most successful clubs in the amateur era folded because not 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 because of uh, of uh, something about you know not being able to cope with professionalism, but because they were flat out uh, against it. Mm. So there was a lot of debate back then. There was uh, there was a lot of this organization, which, I mean, there's still a lot of debates whether um, the titles won by current professional clubs during the amateur years should still be counted because things were so messy back then. Uh, there's, the, there's the debate that things are also messy right now as yeah. well. So... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, they they then started to kind of pick up as we as you spoke about the nineteen twenties was their their golden era. Nineteen twenty two, um, they finished. Sorry, nineteen twenty one. We'll just say first of all, they did finish ninth out of eleven. Uh, a club called Platense uh, dropped out of the league. Then, yeah, Platense are, are currently in the first division right now. Actually, already. Yeah, they are. So uh, they came back. Excellent. Not only that, uh, until last season, they well, they, they made the final of the Copa de la Liga last season. They only lost to Rosario Central in it. And uh, until last season, they were actually managed by, remember, Martin Palermo? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, they are, so they're, they're quite a big club in Argentina then now at the moment, are they? They're decently sized. I'm, I, I mean, I, I would still classify them as a team that are kind of like a traditional Argentine club. I'm not exactly big. I mean, there's only five of them for us. They're yeah. because they're like, like universally considered big, but they're they're pretty decently sized. They have a nice stadium. It's actually quite close to to Rio Plate Stadium. Uh, right. But yeah, they're they're a pretty decently sized club. They have a lot of history. They have a they're very traditional. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was 1922 when uh, uh, Sportive Palermo uh, they moved back to Palermo. Um and they basically nearly won their first title, only losing out to Hurricane uh, by three points that season. So I assume you know moving back into their their neighbourhood and stuff like that would it have been a case that they would have got more followers or more fans to games and stuff like that. Would have that have helped? I assume that would have helped. It can't be a hindrance, surely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they they went back to their roots. They went back mm. to the place where they were founded in the first place. So. I yeah, I mean, they've, they've finished sense. ahead of Boca Juniors, like, which is no mean feat. Like, we all know Boca are a huge club. Like, so to finish ahead of them, not really Absolutely. sure Boca Juniors were, were you know, a, a quality club back in the 1920s. But even then, like, you know, it's still, it's still a mean feat. I mean, they had their they had their, their spell. They came second and they're up to 16. So uh, maybe a little bit of a one-season wonder there. Um, it was a 23-club season, though. 23 club league at that point so you're after going from 11 to 23 that's nearly double so yeah. 
there's huge changes there. Is it is it a case we we've spoken about different leagues around the world, even uh, the US, Australian, only in in recent times, kind of trying to find our feet and trying to find the best format um possible. Is it a case that in Argentinian football in the twenties that was the case? They were trying to find the best format to get people involved, to get fans, uh, and to find the kind of best way to you know uh, create interest, or or what was it? I think it was more of a case of whether... Just, just for a laugh, can you explain the promotion and, and the relegation system in Argentina right now? Oh. <laughs> so, okay. So you have two ways in which you can get relegated from the first division in Argentina. And it's only been like this since last year. So for the last 40 years, ever since San Lorenzo first got relegated in 1981, which was... A huge, huge shock as it was the first time a grande, one of the five big teams from Argentina, got relegated. They devised a system in which uh, you would get the aggregated results of your last three seasons. And based on that, the, the worst teams from those aggregated results from the last three seasons, what we call promedios, only those teams would be relegated. However, uh, since this was a, a system designed to favor the big teams, the big teams still got relegated. So you got Racing relegated in 1983, then River in 2011, and Independiente in 2013. So it felt like, despite the system being, being devised to try to protect the big clubs, the big clubs were still so bad and so mediocre for so, for so long, they still got relegated. So last year, uh, you got one relegation, one relegation spot through that system, and then another one which was like a regular league format. So the worst team from the the worst team from this year would be relegated this time. So at the first at, at the start of the season, there were supposed to be four uh, four relegation spots, two for the for one format and two for the other. And then at the beginning of the season, one of the formats was uh, one of the relegation spots was stricken out because of a request from other clubs. And then as the season progressed, and then clubs like uh, Vélez and Huracán and Colón, like historic clubs, Gimnasia as well, they were faced by the prospect of relegation through uh, being one of the worst teams of the year. Another relegation spot was also taken in the middle of the season. Uh, despite having started the season with four relegation spots, now we only got two, which meant that the league would still have 28 teams by the end of it. So uh, at the end of the years, only one team was relegated through the, the old format with the, with the aggregated results, which was Arsenal. And then another team got relegated by being the worst team of the year, which was Colón, who actually had to uh, play for uh, exactly that, that Arsenal. Uh, nothing to do with the, with the London club, nothing to do with it. Uh, <laughs> and another team, which was Colón, was relegated by being the worst team of the year, which was actually uh, uh, settled through um, a playoff against Gimnasia, which got the same number of points as Colón, which was uh, quite uh, quite an exciting kind of way to to decide what team gets relegated. But it was like the first time in ages that it was like that. Like, there was like a normal league. So, yeah, it, it's a doozy, yeah. It's incredible, and, and I think... The reason that there ended up being a split in two leagues formed was because one wanted to be like a completely closed shop, no promotion, no relegation, no other leagues, nothing. Uh, for the, the, the there's just nothing. It's it's you know it, it's just a league, and that's it every season, which is a bit boring. 
But I can imagine that the league at that point, you know, going from 11 teams to 23, obviously shows how much football has grown in Argentina at that time and, and how many more teams are being accepted into the leagues. But, you know, it kind of stabilised briefly and, well, I don't know if it's ever really been stable, to be honest. It's the, <laughs> the rules and, and relegation settings and things have, have always kind of been nuts, to be honest. Yeah, I mean... Going going into into that, it's, it's like it doesn't sound mu- like much has changed since the nineteen twenties because Palermo kind of switched from the AFA to AAMF and clubs like All Boys, uh, Banfield, uh, Sportivo Villa, Uruguay—I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly—Argentina uh, de Quilmes all um, kind of switched after being relegated from the the uh, AAMF, uh, they kind of switched to the AFA, and then Sportivo Palermo then went back uh, after just one one season uh, and played in uh, the AAMFA and finished 14th out of 24. Um, they did improve in 1925, they finished 7th, um, and then in 1926 they finished 8th. But then it was the 1927 is when the two uh, leagues merged together. Um and it saw several clubs being relegated from the AFA. So would that have meant then is that a concession that the AAMF were the top dogs? They were the proper league back then? I, I don't know if they were a stronger league back then that the AFA saw their clubs get relegated. Is that correct or is it just the way it was? I think it's kind of the way it was because I mean as as we all know, then the AFA would eventually become the the the, the the winners actually of that argument kind of like what happened uh, with the basketball leagues in the US back in the in the 60s and 70s so uh, I think it was more of a case of um, depending on where they they would be able to be registered on how many slots there were available I think it's more of uh, more of that instead of like uh, a terms of in terms of you know supremacy or the the level of, of those teams mm. I mean, uh, it was 1927, the Primera Division uh, basically emerged, and there was 34 clubs in the first one, uh, which is a huge league, uh, if you think about it. Um, but there was no relegation. So the clubs that finished uh, down the bottom were Tigre, uh, San Is- Isidro. San Isidro. Isidro. Pardon me, my pronunciation is not terrible. Yeah, um, so and Estudiants uh, and... Porteno. Are they all still clubs still still around? Or are they are any of them yeah. gone? Tigre are in the first division. Right. Um they, they are right now playing the first division. Actually, uh, you know, um well, who can be you know Mateo Retegui, the striker. Yeah, he's yeah. not playing for the Italy national team. That's that's where he was playing uh, before right, he left okay. to Italy. Then I think you also mentioned well, San Isidro, I don't think they're a club anymore. Uh okay. They are big in rugby, but not in football right now. And then you mentioned Estudiantes, Estudiantes Porteño, you said. Yeah. I think there is an, there is an Estudiantes, uh, of course, there's Estudiantes de la Plata, which are quite a club. They're historic. They're not, of course, they're not Estudiantes Porteño because that would mean, I think they might be Estudiantes de Caseros, uh, the one you're talking about. That's Estudiantes de la Plata. There you go. In case Henry's wondering, uh, Vincent's showing every every time we mention a club, Vincent shows Jersey that he he's uh, man. unbelievable, unbelievable uh, collection they, of jerseys. That's, Vincent, that's an amazing, amazing collection. That's an amazing yeah, collection. I got, I got another, I, I've got another great shirt. You probably like it. It's a keeper. Oh yeah, yeah. This is brilliant. Now, Vincent, keep in mind nobody can see this. <laughs> oh, amazing! Now yeah. Montoya. Carlos Montoya. 
That's uh, ah, San Martin de Bursaco. Nice. Yeah. I was trying to guess which which club it was from. It was San Martin de Bursaco. Nice. In 1928, though, uh, if we thought 34 clubs was uh, a big league, they made it bigger. Uh, they added two more clubs to it. And uh, the, season, uh, the, the season was, uh, yeah, 30, 36 clubs. But they only played each other once. So they didn't play uh, each other twice. So uh, obviously there was some sort of draw made where you'd, obviously he was playing home and away and stuff like that. Um, they, there, was, there was actual relegation. Uh, so clubs like Liberal, Argentino, and Porteño uh, got relegated. Uh, Sportivo, uh, Palermo came 19th that season. In that season, though, there was a weird scenario that I actually found out in the book that the founders of the league were exempt from relegation uh, that season. Now, that that's a weird scenario. That would be like saying a club that founded the league can never get relegated. That's That's strange. Still quite, it, it, it was kind of common though, and, and I think it's, so in, in Scotland you had uh, election and re-election to the league at one point, and then when they restructured, sometimes they would, um, you know, they would stop relegation. So I think it was maybe the late 80s, early 90s, where Aberdeen actually got saved from relegation because of a league restructure, and, and they didn't end up going down. And I think there, there is quite a big perception that these reconstructions always happen when a big team is really, really struggling. So it kind of maybe looks quite bad. Could have just been down to league reconstruction. I'm, I'm not too sure. But also, um, it could be because they just didn't want their big clubs out of the league. This wasn't a reconstruction. This was There was actual law put in, right? That if they finished in the bottom two, one of these clubs, they couldn't get relegated unless they finished in the bottom two a second time. So they were given a kind of lifeline. Um, and even more bizarrely was that this not, did not apply to clubs that played in the AFA. Um, so they couldn't get relegated. So this is, it, it, there's a lot of favouritism and, and maybe a bit of politics here, Santi, back in the day, was there, in regards to, to how Argentinian football uh, was run. And, well, you know, it, it does feel a little bit unfair to those clubs that did eventually get relegated uh, because they maybe didn't go down on merit or lack of merit or performance really um, when did this all kind of stop? I think it's long over um, that's kind of thinking I, I think it has to do with the fact that back then uh, as uh, professionalism dawned it was also the, the power structure around you know the clubs and the league began to take shape and that's how we got the big five like um, they're not the the big five because they were the most successful, not just because of that, but also because uh, in the beginning beginning of the league they also had a veto power. Boca River, Independiente, Racing, and San Lorenzo they had veto power when it came to you know uh, making decisions when it comes to the performance of the tournaments in the AFA. Having said that, I feel like uh, that change I I told you about when it comes to relegation. Uh, there was device to try and protect the big clubs. It was kind of a way of them to try to uh, flex the muscles and uh, show that they still felt like they were entitled to keep playing in the league despite being as big as they are and despite having a, a poor season. Like They were trying to argue that having a poor season wasn't enough of a, of a reason for them to get relegated. So even if it's not as uh, transparent transparently kind of uh, entitled as it was back then, there's still a feeling of entitlement through these kind of decisions. I like buy striking one relegation, try to like 
uh, argue uh, in favour of like not being relegated for this or that reason. 1929 came uh, and there was a bit of a a reconstruction again and stuff like that. But there was also a lot of controversies back then. Uh, games getting abandoned and, and stuff like that. Now, I did read that one or two of them because of referee decisions and and, and, and players uh, just walked off the pitch because they didn't agree with referees. Um, Hurricane famously uh, didn't finish the league. Um, they, they were the champions the season before, 1928, I believe. And 1929, with eight games to go, they just went, no, nah, we're not playing anymore. And just, <laughs> just decided, you know, that's that. Um, obviously, we, we we spoke earlier about how away fans can't go to games and stuff like that. It does seem like there was a bit of a seed sown back then uh, that, you know, there was always kind of that kind of, I don't want to say trouble, but maybe an overpassion uh, when it comes to the football fans. Uh, would that be correct? So has that always been the case? Unfortunately, yeah. I think, uh, but the thing I... What I where I would make the distinction is uh in the reason as why uh there were some violent episodes because while I would argue that like back then in the twenties and thirties and even in the like sixty up until the seventies or the eighties there were uh, episodes of violence because of this kind of support and this kind of like uh increased passion I feel like. From the 1980s onwards, it became all the more political because uh, Barra Bravas, which w- would be kind of like our version, of course, of you know ultras. They are not mm-hmm. ultras in the sense that, in the sense like Europeans, that they are like normal people, kind of organized uh, to you know show the support for the team. They actually have political power. They are people who are linked to uh, politicians from different parties, and they can. Um, bargain with the club presidents to you know make sure that these groups of people can have a free access onto the pitch and they can have a free reign into dressing rooms and to speak to players so i feel like violence became more and more kind of uh, intrinsically linked to the political uh landscape of argentina as the years went by which was not the case in the 1920s and i, I feel like it wasn't until the 80s when this began to happen and I feel like that's like the current core of uh, most conflicts around uh, support I feel like in the 21st century especially. I can, uh, I, I've experienced that firsthand. It's at Arsenal Sarandi for example, I went there uh, in the morning of Rusting against Independiente at 11am was Arsenal Sarandi against Defensa if I'm correct. And the we we came across the the main man of the Barabravas, and he, they, he was like, "Where are you guys from?" Uh, yeah, Holanda. We had, we had the tour guide with us, of course. And uh, yeah, yeah, they, they, these guys are from uh, the Netherlands. Uh, they're going to watch the club. And they were like, "Okay, you're me now." So we were invited by the leader of the Barabravas. Uh, we went to their clubhouse, and he just pulled out like this stack of ticket, like five centimeters of ticket, like. Here's tickets for you guys. You're with me. You can do whatever, no problem. And to be honest, I know uh, I've heard stories about Arsenal and Sandy. They're not a big club. I can acknowledge that. I will acknowledge that. But it was one of the best matches I've been there because it will go wrong. Everything is taken care of. So that was for me like, yeah, the director of the club is not the boss of the club. This guy is the boss of the club. <laughs> believe it or not, actually, believe it or not. Arsenal may be a small club, but they, I mean, for a long, long time, they were a very powerful club. 
because yeah. uh, of course they were founded by Julio Humberto Grondona, who was the president of the AFA for 35 years. Yeah, I've heard. Of course, and, and you will see his name. Uh, have you, you, you've been to the clubhouse, so you will see his name and his photo everywhere in that stadium. Absolutely yeah. everywhere. Yeah, it's so, pretty much the same at uh, Barracasa right now, right? Yeah, Barracas Central, which, uh, I mean, they're the club founded by Claudio Tapia, which is the current president of the AFA. And they had their own road into the first division through very, you know, shady refereeing and uh, hmm. kind of small favors around. And, well, eventually they ended up winning a, a league title, a Copa Argentina, Copa Sudamericana. So eventually they... It, actually... It's all very honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> allegedly. Yeah, we have we'll to say see, allegedly. <laughs> we'll see how far Barraca Central can do. I don't think they will get as far as Arsenal because as Arsenal feels like they have, uh, despite being, you know, benefited in the in these kind of terms they also have a very strong fan base by the by themselves which i don't think barracas has as much so we'll see how they perform but they already they have already been looked at with a lot of suspicion just like arsenal throughout all these years so we'll see how it, what happens We'll try to get through because we have so many questions about Argentina football and we want to cover them all. Uh, basically, in 1931, there was more controversy. There was a bit of a split. 18 clubs, uh, including Boca Juniors, River Play, San Lorenzo and all split and went off and made their own kind of professional league. But uh, Palermo stayed with the AFA uh, and continued on with them. Um, they didn't really reach the heights uh, that they did back in the 20s and, and kind of from the 30s uh, onwards, uh, they kind of just floated about really. 1934, uh, they, they finished bottom uh, in 23rd place and it was the final season which the club played as a marriage club as both went their separate ways. Once again, they, they merged with a club called uh, Club Atletico Palermo, I think, I believe, at that time, uh, which was a short-lived merger. Uh, and in 1934, they, they split again. A bit like the two Polish clubs uh, already that we covered. Uh, they kind of got together didn't make sense and they kind of disappeared uh, all, uh, their separate ways. So we're kind of seeing that again. They then went into the lower leagues and stuff like that, the third division, uh, fourth division, uh, up until 1971, I believe. And then they dissolved. Is that correct, Santi? Or am I off the mark there? Sorry, up until 1983. 1983, I have it. Yeah. And that's when they bounced between the fourth and fifth divisions throughout the 60s and the 70s. They yeah. were never... Uh, I mean, for that time, they struggled a lot to, you know, to keep the support. I mean, the only, the only support was the old people who were still, you know, supporting the club from the early days. And uh, that began to die out as they uh, lost their home and they were forced to be be playing at home in different kind of uh, places around Buenos Aires. Uh, they also struggled to, to pay their own to pay their own players. They, they actually went to a game with 10 players and no subs, I think. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, and they actually, in order to survive during the, the dictatorship between 1976 and 1983, they had to take a a pretty big loan, which uh, eventually couldn't pay back, and that was uh, what led to the demise in in 1983. Of course, it's um, you know when we discuss football in Argentina around that period of time, you of course have to um have to talk about the the dictatorship at that point and the, the people who disappeared and, and football fans and footballers themselves and um and other people who were affected by that and and you know as you, I was gonna ask a question, but as you say that was a loan that they 
took out to get through the dictatorship years that, that eventually sunk them, unfortunately. But it seemed like they were on a bit of a, a kind of downward trajectory anyway. It's, it's never a good sign when games with, without you know number of players that they need and 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 they're slipping down the leagues and so on and so forth but of course there were other football clubs and and, and millions of other people who suffered through that time as well which which has to be stated and, and you know we have to have that backdrop and we're discussing football in argentina at that point yeah uh, i mean sandy did they ever come back in any shape or form i i can't I, i've seen a few uh palermo kind of names and stuff but i couldn't i wouldn't be able to say that they're connected to the uh, sportive palermo have they come back or anything in any shape I mean, form, amateur see... Yeah, I mean, you will see, you know, some, you know, Facebook pages and stuff, but yeah. I feel like that's more kind of like descendants of former socios, former members of the club, mm. trying to keep the memory of the club alive, but not a club exactly. And then I found something extremely weird, which I think it really does not have any any kind of um, relation to this club. But I found that on Twitter, there is this account of a club called Sportivo Palermo, which play in blue as well. But the, the, the badge has nothing to do with the old Sportivo Palermo. They don't play in the dark blue shirts they used to wear. But they're a club from kind of like a virtual league founded by streamers. Yeah, which so is extremely weird to me. I mean, it, it's got like all fake players with fake games and fake kind of statements to the media and all, all that kind of stuff. It's called it's like extremely one, funny to me. One future yeah. Or something because I, I looked at them as well because I was like, all oh, right, there's like a, a kind of like maybe they're related to them or something like that. And then I went on it and I was like, what the fuck is going on here? And I was like, is this <laughs> NFT or crypto thing? And I was like, no, like it's it's even weirder. Like it, it is honestly, it's, it's very very strange. Good luck to them and and fair play. <laughs> to them. Maybe they maybe they read the book and they saw the name and they went, ah, oh, we 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 like that name and we will just go with it. It's it, it is it, it's a weird one. Uh, the other the other question I'm going to ask you, I think I kind of asked at the start. Is there any connection with that neighborhood and the Italian uh, um, Palermo? Is there? Um, I think there may be. Uh, I mean, there in all likelihood there may be because I mean you've got as you said before a lot of Italian immigration, a lot of Spanish immigration as well. But I feel like um, uh, there. I mean, the reason why it may be called Palermo is because uh, there was there was a lot of people from that. Uh, from that part in Sicily, in Italy, uh, which they they eventually went to live there in that in that specific region, and then it grew into what it is today, which Palermo is kind of one of the most uh, tourist uh, friendly kind of destinations for, for for in in Buenos Aires right now. It's got a lot of a lot of you know fancy places to eat, a lot of you know uh, places to to watch live music as well. That's why I said it was kind of like a hipster slash bohemian kind of place in Argentina, which. I don't know if it has any kind of uh, similarity which with uh, Palermo right now, like the actual Palermo, because I mean we're talking about kind of like a seaside uh, destination, in, like the original Palermo, which it, it, this is clearly not. But anyway, I feel mm -hmm. like it might be something related to that, to like uh, you know the early kind of immigrants from uh, coming from that specific uh, place in Italy. I mean, and point to, to kind of kind of jump on to the next part, I suppose, because we we've spoken about Sportivo Palermo, and and it's it's a really kind of interesting story of um of the amount of mergers that it went through, and and we can talk a lot about identity and 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 immigration and things like that alongside it. But I suppose it's it's kind of a question in, in two parts, Santi. We'll move on now to the the second part where we just kind of have a general discussion about other um lost clubs from Argentina, good stories, and and a little bit about football in Argentina now. But I suppose really. 
when you mention migration, obviously the, 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 there's a large Scottish connection with football in Argentina through Alexander Watson Hutton, who is yeah. I've, I've I don't know did is he known as the father of football in Argentina? Because I've seen loads of people say that he is, but I've never actually heard anyone say that he is. If that makes sense. Yes, I think that that would be like a, an accurate kind of statement because I mean, after all, it was it was this man who actually founded the AFA in 1993. Uh, he was the man who kind of uh, instituted the practice of football at schools, which was um, kind of something that uh, makes the, the 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 first stages of football and kind of codified football, which are, is quite similar to what happened in England. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that it was first played at schools, uh, and it was actually one of the one of the clubs that was founded by Alexand- Alexander Watson Hudson, which is called uh, I mean back then it was called the Buenos Aires English High School, which is a school that still exists and which I actually attended. Oh really? Oh, that's cool. enough, <laughs> it was uh, it was my primary school actually. Uh, yeah. So I mean I, I have the Alexander Watson Hudson name ingrained in my mind because of that. So you can imagine. Oh, that's awesome! Really, yeah, that's brilliant, <laughs> amazing. But he, he so, was so... no, Sorry? yeah. I was just gonna say that you know there there was like St Andrews Football Club in, in Argentina and a number of others as well, and um, you yeah, know, Belgrano he... Athletic as well, which was kind of like the main rival of Alumni, Alumni, which was of course the the name that they eventually took when uh, school names were banned by by the AFA and they they could only use you know names related to the cities or to the the place where they were founded, but not schools. Uh, they took the name Alumni, and back then they were a very successful club. They were one of the most uh, storied and, and uh, well, one of the biggest clubs actually in the pre-professional football uh, period in Argentina. But as I as I alluded to before, they were one of the clubs who were opposed to playing professional professional football. So they played for the last time in 1911, mm-hmm. uh, and I think it was in 1913 that they eventually dissolved. And what happened with uh, clubs like based on schools like uh, like Belgrano Athletic and Alumni is that eventually uh, some descendants of, of of those players they actually founded rugby clubs and they are now some of the biggest rugby clubs in Argentina. But fo- but when it comes to football, that's where their their story ends. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, of course, all those earlier clubs as well. You know. Whenever we talk about a country, there's always these early clubs that 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 will be here. They'll lay the foundations. They'll they'll be considered as some of the greatest and most historic clubs in the country. But they're, they're no longer with us because, you know, different reasons. That's just what happens. Um. So obviously there was all those clubs, and and a number of those aren't around anymore. But I was wondering because I had a look around and and it was just a brief bit of research. You know, maybe didn't do enough digging. In the last maybe sort of 20, 30 years or so, have there been any really sort of big cases of clubs in Argentina just going bust and never coming back? Yeah, you know, any kind of big scandals like that? Because it's difficult for me to find anything online. I just wondered if it's something that happens quite frequently or not. Uh, it's not, actually. Actually, I actually think that, um, funnily enough, Sportivo Belgrano has, um, has kind of a reputation for being the last club to be uh, disaffiliated from the AFA. Was what was happened 40 years ago. Uh, and I think that is the case because uh, there is this law in Argentina that uh, kind of forces all clubs to be fan-owned, um, which uh, and which does not allow clubs to be to be bankrupt, I think, as well. Ah, despite okay. how many deaths they have. Because, I mean, Racing actually came 
pretty, pretty, pretty close from going bust in 1999, uh, Racing Club. Uh, and uh, they were actually forced, they were forced to be sold to uh, a private uh, kind of owner in order to survive. They had to be uh, run by, run by a, um, by an entrepreneur for for a few years, which it's a, an object of mockery from independent fans since then. Uh, but because of that uh, kind of uh, because because of that scenario, because of how close Racing actually were from going bust, the this law actually came out in which clubs could not go bankrupt because I mean they uh, they realized how much importance they they hold within their own communities and youth football as well, and to keep children away from you know starvation and poverty and stuff which uh, as it happens this is a debate that has gone back now into the into the mainstream because of uh, who has been elected as president right now is a, a libertarian uh, who is now proposing uh, that clubs should be owned by um, well by private uh, by private companies back uh, well something that's actually extremely unpopular here and something that all clubs have voiced their uh, opposition towards. So we're going to see how that situation develops and whether fan ownership can still be the norm here in Argentina, even if, uh, admittedly, there have been a lot of kind of um, disadvantages when it comes to, you know, uh, what can happen uh, when, you know, political power gets into kind of these systems mm -hmm. of fan ownership and, uh, you know, political parties can take up take hold of clubs despite the fact that they should be fan owned so well, that's the uh, thing it's quite difficult to separate football clubs from politics in Argentina a lot of the time and, and I know a lot of former politicians are, are, are presidents at clubs and, and, and do things like that as well so it can be difficult I did see that um, that debate had to come back into the mainstream in Argentina I think Brazil also recently passed a law saying that, that their clubs could be bought by yeah. say, investors as well I mean, I would hope that the clubs stay fan-owned. Um, I think you're absolutely spot on in what you say, that it's uh, a good way to preserve identity and, and help people that these these things are anchors within their communities. Um, and it should be kept as such, and it's fantastic that they were protected like that, and, and let's hope that it continues for, for a while longer. Yeah, the thing with that is that that has also allowed uh, some terrible, terrible administrators to, you know... Um, let their clubs sink economically and uh, in sporting terms because of that protection, which means that they cannot uh, face any consequences because of that. I mean, they cannot, you know, you have clubs that are mired in debt. I, I would actually cite Independiente as a big example of that. And they haven't had any kind of consequences when it comes to, you know, uh, points, uh, points deductions or uh, actually transfer funds only a couple of times because of FIFA, but not because of Argentine football itself which uh, meant that some clubs have been extremely poorly uh, administrated. So I feel like even if, uh, I mean, this is of course a very flawed kind of system, one that needs several maybe uh, amendments in order for this, in order to, to avoid this kind of things happening. I feel like um, letting clubs uh, go into kind of private ownership would mean that uh, this kind of uh, disadvantages would be accelerated. So, I mean, it's a very tight line to walk, you know. Yeah, I, I think we've spoken about fan-owned clubs and kind of being owned by millionaires and stuff, the pros and cons to it. 
Um, I mean, we could, we could list through loads of them, um, but it's, that's, that's quite interesting. I mean, I, I read a little bit about, I actually think I've done an article about fan-owned clubs around the world and stuff like that, and touched on Argentina and stuff in the laws. Uh, I know in Brazil, they're, they're trying to bring it in, and I think it's something to do with Red Bull have bought a club in Brazil, haven't they? And uh, I can't remember, it begins with B, and they're kind of flying up the, Yeah, that's it. And they're flying up the leagues, and, and they're, they're, they're kind of making... Everybody kind of nervous, uh, all the bigger clubs nervous. So I think that that's that's what's that behind it. Um, I suppose uh, you you spoke about uh, uh, Palermo being the last kind of forgotten football club or to dissolve and stuff like that. Uh, but there has been many in Argentina that I said I could have picked from the nineteen twenties and and around that uh, era. Um, going forward in Argentina. Uh, obviously, it was um, Boca Juniors were in the Libertadores final there, weren't they, against Fluminense? Um, yeah. How is Argentinian football at the moment as a standard, as a, you know, as a nation? Obviously, won the World Cup and stuff like that. That's at an international level. But at a domestic level, how is it? Like, we, we look at it uh, from your, from Ireland. Uh, you know, I'd be like Rory. I'd take a glance at it. I know, obviously, Boca River play. I'd, I'd watch them games and stuff like that. Uh, fascinating games. But in general, the quality and the standard, how would you put it? How, how would you uh, compare it to, say, even Europe's leagues? I think it's an interesting question because, um, I mean, I feel like there is no doubt that in that Argentina will keep producing some really talented players. To, I mean, eventually, because, I mean, this is such a big, big, big sport and you will always find kind of uh, great players will eventually rise through the, the youth ranks and then to the top of the game. But it feels like uh, for the last... 30, 40 years, the top of the game has not been in Argentina. That has shifted quite heavily towards Europe. And it's not even in Argentina in terms of like South America, because as you said before, like the Brazil's uh, relaxation of their own uh, loss when it comes to ownership has led to some clubs actually going down uh, with, with like uh, the cases of, you know, Cruzeiro and Vasco da Gama. And Santos, a lot of clubs struggling, but that has also meant that other clubs like Flamengo and Palmeiras have become so powerful in terms of economics and so successful that they uh, have uh, they can afford squads that are that really do off Argentina. I mean, Argentine Argentine clubs can still compete at an international level because uh, the rest of the standard throughout the throughout the the continent is still quite low when it when it's compared to Argentina, with a few specific uh, uh, exceptions. But I feel like the quality in football in Argentina has dropped a lot uh, because you, you will see that uh, clubs have uh, gone down, well, kind of like what I've seen throughout the country in terms of, you know, the economic state and uh, the, the misadministration of clubs as well that has led to uh, players being sold younger and younger and for less money than before, you know, We've seen that right now as we speak with uh, Claudio Echeverri, who, who should be at 17 years old, someone who should be developed for at least two or three more years at River, but who is now being sold for peanuts uh, to Manchester City. Only because... Uh, or that guy, that, uh, that red-headed guy from Boca, I forgot his name, but he just got sold to Middlebrough, correct? He's going to be... Well, is it 10 million or something the price is yeah. which you know it, it, i'll look to that and i say that's it's incredible how he's managing to leave for that amount of money but on the other hand of it i think it was lannis sold alexandro bernabe to celtic for four and a half million yeah. to me 
seems like daylight robbery in their part because he hasn't very good. But he hasn't been very good. I actually really, really rate him, to be honest. And I have rated him. I just don't think he's been given enough of a chance. But, um, you know, there's a lot of people that, that were crying out at that fee. But I think the, the, the point is you still need to pay a fair fee for these players. And, and I think, Santi, what you were trying to say is that if you want to progress the league and if you want the standard to increase, maybe slowly but steadily, you can't just keep selling youth for decreasing prices. And, and yeah, Santi, like, I mean, just coming on to exactly what Rory said, like, we have a problem here in the League of Ireland where all our decent talent straight away at a young age go over to England uh, and, 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 like, the League of Ireland um, uh, suffers. But for me, I want to ask you, because it feels strange. It's for me saying that uh, people say, well, Ireland, isn't uh you know a top football nation? Argentina are the World Cup uh winners. You know they they hold the World Cup. You've you won it three times, isn't it? Um, yeah. I mean, how can you not hold the top players? Is it to do with money? Yeah, <laughs> anybody who wants to know, he just showed me a short for three stars on it. Uh, yeah, look brilliant. Um, but it, to me, that's why it's amazing that is can't hold is it down to money is it down to money really that, that European clubs have the money to pay the players huge wages and the Argentinian clubs can't is it really down to that I feel like it is a big factor but it's not the only one really? uh, like of course you you will have players who will be you know the young players especially who you know immediately go to si sign with an agent and that agent begins to you know uh, whisper in their ear about you know uh, the riches and the glory of playing playing in Europe and the, the prospects of playing for the national team, right? which I think that is exactly what's going on with someone like Echeverri. Right. Uh, but I feel like um, it, it has also come to a, to a point in which if a player actually wants to develop uh, as a footballer, they need to go to Europe because the pitches are better there, the coaching is better there, and uh, the quality and standard of football are better there, which is something that you, you used to not... I mean, there used to be a lot of a lot more uh, parity when it came to that in Argentina, especially in the 70s and 80s, when you would see, for example, that the Intercontinental Cup would be almost split between uh, South American and European clubs. And even back then in the 2000s with, with a, a site like Boca, who were actually fighting side to side or even beating big, big clubs like uh, Milan and Real Madrid, which it is something that just does not happen anymore because of that golf in quality and coaching and uh, that kind of standard of uh, development I'm, I'm that's yeah, grown between point, Europe and South America. My final question then would be, why is that? Why is Argentina not, is it a lack of investment from the government into football? Um, and Or is it just that the European clubs, we all know there's you know, billions being pumped into super leagues and all this kind of talked about. Uh, the Premier League is completely erupted. You know, fees of two hundred million for players and and wages of three hundred fifty thousand, uh, and, and nobody's kind of expecting other countries to kind of jump at that. But is there a lack of investment from the Argentinian government? Are they kind of going, well, look, we're we're winning World Cups anyway, so why should we invest into football clubs here? We're we're doing all right. Is that the case, or is it just? Uh, I'm trying to understand it. Um, I feel like there is. Of course, that is, a as I said before, I think that is a factor. There is a, I mean, there is a reality that there's just not enough money in Argentina right now when it comes to, you know, investment in football and for clubs to invest in, in their own kind of um, uh, sporting facilities. But also I feel like there's been uh, a decrease in kind of like uh, youth development and management. I mean, there's been a clear step back when it comes to that. 
when you look at the 90s, for example, you had someone, uh, the project of uh, Jose Peckerman, uh, who was leading the, the Argentina youth sites to, you know, five world titles and developing some of the greatest players Argentina has ever produced and showing them a clear pathway through the under-17s, under-20s and the national team. And then of them eventually starting in Europe uh, season upon season. I mean, you can kind of see that in Argentina right now because, I mean, we're still developing good players, but they're leaving a lot earlier. They are leaving kind of underdeveloped and they need that sort of extra time to, to, to go. And uh, we're not selling kind of finished products to Europe anymore. We're selling like extremely young players, extremely inexperienced who need this kind of extra time to, do, to develop. And it's become more and more difficult for those kind of clubs to keep on, keep their own talent and develop their own talent. They've been failing at it. Uh, their own clubs, of course, are kind of uh, also, um, I would say, neglecting that kind of youth development side because they only need the quick buck to to keep going. And the only folk they're only focused on the players they can actually capitalize on. So it kind of it's kind of a vicious circle that. Uh, I don't know, it's extremely difficult to stop unless you have very capable people who have their hearts in the right place. And we don't have a lot of those right now. Yeah, it's um, it can very, very quickly go south and, and lead to, as you mentioned, this kind of steady decrease in, in quality and, and in money coming into clubs. I mean, I think myself and Phil have, have asked you enough questions for now, so I'll, I'll hand the spotlight over to Vincent because he's been waiting all episode um, and I think it's only fair that uh, we let him chat to you and, and ask you some questions about his time in Argentina when you went. Or indeed, Santi, if you have any questions for Vincent as well. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, I first have a question for you and uh, Phil, of course. So we all know Boca Juniors, but do you guys know why they are blue and yellow? Do you have any idea? Uh, There's actually a funny story about that. Uh, Santi, I know you know this, but I want to know if Phil yeah. and... Rory noticed. Is it to do with the Swedish uh, uh, bow came into port and it was the first colours they saw? The first flag? Yeah, you're right saw? on the money. It's yeah. exactly that. <laughs> <Don't>, uh, <laughs> I'll good. do my research. <laughs> Easy Very good. Okay, so next question. I have another question. Uh, where is River Plate originally from? Boca. Very good, Rory. <laughs> yeah, We're well ahead of the game here, Vincent. Yeah, you did your research. Very good. So yeah, I, I actually uh, what what we what you guys were just talking about about uh, the youth development. From what I've seen, uh, what you said, Santiago, they are not that that keen on the youth because from what I experienced is they play, they don't play for the win; they play not to lose for a lot. Is my experience. Yeah, yeah, I think that would be a pretty accurate description. I feel like. Um... It's become so competitive, you know, in like in the reserves uh, and the and the lower divisions when it comes to youth development. That um, coaching is almost exclusively uh, focused on trying to win their current tournament instead of you know focusing on what would be right to develop when it comes to you know uh, specific skills or character. And when you when you come actually when you only focus on winning and trying to you know neglect uh, everything else when you come to the when you come to the to the first division to you know the senior kind of football you feel underdeveloped you feel like you're missing kind of clear key things to 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 continue you know playing at, uh, at the highest level fair enough yeah it's 
I, I don't really have much questions. I just like to talk about Argentinian football. So, uh, how, why do you think? Why are the Argentinians uh, so passionate about their football? Good question. I was actually going to ask that as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it comes across as like obviously, you know, there's different places in the world where you're kind of like, you know, Polish fans, for example, even Dutch fans and stuff like that. Um, like I've been around the world, but watching. Argentinian and Vincent, you've obviously seen it firsthand. And Vincent told me that it's absolutely a different world altogether. What's the story there, Santi? Is it just born into you at a young age? Yeah, I mean, I I, I feel like it is because uh, I mean it's a different, it's a difficult question to to answer for me because I mean, how can you explain something that you've been born with? You know, it's like it's second like nature to me. I mean, it's it's always been in my life. I mean, since I was like Three years old, I was told that I this is like this. I should I should support Independiente. That's the club my dad supported. It's not a choice either. You know, it's kind of the way things are. You know, uh, so yeah. it's uh it's kind of like a chicken or egg kind of uh, kind of question because I mean it's been here for so long and uh, it's uh it's kind of it's been a, a I don't know a way to to keep oneself close to their own community, close to their own country, close to their own uh, tradition, their own history. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, it's kind of a way to, you know, look forward to the weekend, uh, especially in a country that's gone through so many hardships as, di as this one as well. So there are a lot of different factors. And I feel like when you, when you look at uh, the scenes uh, and the celebrations uh, when Argentina won the World Cup, uh, at the end of 2022, you can see that really encapsulated, you know, everyone, there were like 5.5 million people going to the streets of Buenos Aires to celebrate the yeah. World Cup victory, which is... Yeah, I've, I've been to the Obelisco and I was like, yeah, I've, I've seen the pictures beforehand, of course. I was like, okay, that's a lot of people. But when I was there, I was like, okay, this is really big. It was even... Yeah, you, you, if you haven't been there, you can't imagine how big... The, the streets around the Obelisco are. So it's yeah, like, for you, Phil, it's just to imagine like 12 streets next to each other that's, and for like two kilometers or something. And that was I mean, filled with people. I mean, Santi, you had the short on, you've won it three times at the World Cup. Uh, maybe an Irishman, I'll probably never <laughs> get to experience that. Uh, I don't know if Vincent as a Dutchman will ever, probably not. Uh, the bridesmaids always, uh, the Netherlands. Although, you never know, they, they, they might do it. Um, what's it like to see your country win the World Cup? It, I can only imagine that feeling is is just unbelievable. It, 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 like, explain it to us. Look, for me, it was the first time. Uh, yeah. that, that time, because, I mean, back then it was the 78 and 86. I was like, it was, it was years before I was even born. Yeah. So, uh, And for people born in the 80s in Argentina, it was only, you know, 40 years of only just, um, you know, pure uh, frustrations year after year, tournament after tournament, especially in the last 30 years when Argentina had won nothing, not even a single Copa America, uh, when, you know, Argentina lost finals to Chile, lost finals in the in the last minute against Brazil, uh, got trounced by Brazil in other occasions, you know, you, there was all this kind of pent-up frustration uh, that's, that was a, an absolute release. And to, to do it in the way Argentina did it as well, you know, playing in the way they did against a country like France, which were the defending champions and who had a, another worldly player like Kylian Mbappe at, 
his very, very, very best form to do it the way they did it and to 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 do it also in the context of a country like this with such insane levels of you know inflation and um, political unrest and uh, mm. you know division as well. It was a uh, it was kind of like a release, like a release from from all that. I mean the first. The first thing to the first thing that I did once uh, when Salomon Tiel scored that winning penalty was I mean I, I just couldn't stop crying. I couldn't. Yeah. I, I was actually working. I was working oh. for La Nacion back then, and I just everyone was just jumping around a celebration, and all I could do was cry for like ten minutes straight. I mean, it's, awesome. it was extremely extremely emotional to me, oh, especially so because I mean I was the only one in that newsroom who had never seen Argentina win a World Cup before. Oh wow, that's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I'm not lying when I say that, and and you know, don't I don't think it's recency bias because it's a years past now. I think it's the best football match I've ever watched, and I'm not even kidding because uh, I I think it is the greatest game that I've seen so far. And and to be fair, I'm 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 only going to be 28 next month, so um you know there's there's but honestly it was incredible. And I mean, I was back in Argentina just because I I, I like Messi and I wanted Messi to win the the World Cup. So um, I mean, you, yeah. My, yeah, it was definitely the best World Cup final I, I, I've ever. I'm I'm 33, so uh, my first moment, actually, my first uh, memory of a World Cup, funny enough, is uh 1998, and of course that's when Holland and Argentina uh, played each other. Yeah. Uh, Vincent smiling there. I think actually, Rory, I, I just realized. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Dennis Bergkamp. Coach man here in an Argentinian, and I, I, Rory, they're they're quite friendly. I think we should go on peacekeeping missions because we've kind of got them uh, uh, friendly together there. But uh, obviously, what happened in 2022 uh, with the frictions, but great games like that. Night, yeah, obviously that 1998, the Dennis Bergkamp goal. Uh, that was one of my first memories of a World Cup, and then obviously you go through all the all the history and stuff like that uh, through it out but Argentina for me have always produced unbelievable like Gabriel Batistuta for example Tevez even in more modern times um, you know unbelievable players and uh, you know it just seemed right that they won the 2022 World Cup eventually like it was always going to happen and as already mentioned you know everybody wanted Messi to win it Um it, it, it just and, and you can see the pictures of the Argentinians, the emotion. I think every picture we saw, people were crying. <laughs> and that's what I was going to ask you, Santi. Did you cry? You've already answered it. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, the, um, the, yeah. The legends and heroes that have come out of Argentina. You forgot Dundee legend Claudio Canizia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't talked about the biggest legends, one, the one and only El Dios. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you, Santi, like uh, the saying goes, everyone in Argentina has... A story about Maradona, a personal story about Maradona. Do you have one? And if so, what is it? Well, I mean, um, Maradona, of course, retired two years before I was born. Uh, so when, I mean, when it comes to the, like, the football itself, uh, I don't have like kind of a direct kind of encounter with Maradona. I, I didn't get that chance. But I will say that one of my very, very first gigs uh, in in journalism, I think, was uh, recording uh, a Copa 90 documentary about, you know, the comparisons between Messi and Maradona, which was, I think, in 2017. Uh, and it was a, kind of an experience, a, a great, great experience for me because, I mean, it, will, it also got me, you know, the possibility of, you know, there was back then still a, a lot of debate on whether Messi could ever reach uh, the kind of heights and the kind of adulation that Maradona, or, or the, the success actually that Maradona enjoyed with Argentina, there were still some 
some skepticism, not from everyone, but from a certain group of people around Messi back then. And I got to watch uh, the final game of qualification, the one that Argentina really needed to win in order to get into the Russia World Cup against Ecuador at the home of the people from the Iglesia Maradoniana in Rosario, which was a really, really uh, great experience. They, they are great guys. Of course, they were, I mean, as, as you can expect from people who are literally created the Church of Maradona, they will have their own kind of uh, side uh, in that debate. But it was a great experience because, uh, I mean, it was a game in which Messi was demanded to appear and to, you know, show up for Argentina. And that is exactly what they did. He scored a hat-trick in the game that Argentina desperately needed to win and got them into the World Cup, which, I mean, eventually it was an absolute disaster, but we won't talk about that. We don't need to talk about, about that. <laughs> no, no, it's, all, it's about... Yeah, it was about that game. About the exactly. journey, not the destination. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I suppose I was going to ask the question, uh, and it's it, I think this is always going to come. Um, Messi or Maradona, Santi? Look, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be biased because uh, of course Messi is the one I watched, and Messi is mm -hmm. the one I grew up with, and Messi is the one that gave me the World Cup during my lifetime. So I will have to say Messi. Yeah. Uh, because I mean, it's fair. And since he also won the, you know, he won the World Cup, he won the Copa America, he won the, the Finalissima as well against Italy. It feels like these last couple of years he's uh, been on a mission to try and uh, kind of shut down any kind of uh, debate or any kind of, uh, you know, skepticism around his figure and what he means to the national team. And I feel like to do that after so many years of, you know, as I said before, skepticism and questioning and uh, even insults, from some of their own, that's that took a lot of mental strength and a lot of love for for his own country. You know, to never let them down, despite their country probably letting probably him down on several occasions. Which I feel like that's the biggest gift of all. You know, the fact that he never gave up, the fact that he never actually uh, he always chose to play for Argentina when he could have just chosen to play for Spain and win a couple of World Cups and a couple of Euros if he wanted. So. Yeah. Like I, I, I watched the, that for that. Yeah, I, I, that's a great answer, and I think I don't think there's a wrong answer to it. Um, I mean, if you had said Maradona, we would have definitely agreed with you. Yeah. Um, because I watched the um Netflix documentary Captains of the World there, um, and it, obviously it goes through the World Cup 2022, and Messi's obviously an integral part of it, and it does show uh, clips back in the day of Argentinian fans giving him saying, "Oh, he's a failure to the country and stuff like that." And when you're looking at that, you're kind of going. Like, I could that I suppose in a way it's kind of like us in Ireland saying that about Robbie Keane, it was our kind of you know messy if you like, but it does happen. A lot of people here in Ireland would say it about Robbie Keane or even Roy Keane, uh, you know, who's also that type of player. Yeah, but I mean, Roy Keane did, uh, I mean, abandon the national team during the World Cup, so maybe it could be a little bit justified in that in that kind of uh scenario. I would say it's still a debate here, Sandy. <laughs> still a say, uh, what it's like what 20, 21 years later, and there's still people uh will debate you in a pub over here in Ireland. But um, no, no, yeah, 100%. No, I understand exactly what you're saying. Messi, despite the criticism, never walked away uh from Argentina. He did retire, I think, but he did come back straight away. I think it was just I a mean, moment of emotion, wasn't it? It was barely a retirement because, I mean, he did say that he was retiring like at the end of the of the 2016 Copa America. But before the following international break, he was already back. Yeah. So he didn't miss any games between his no. retirement and his him coming back from retirement. So Yeah, yeah I think that's the emotion of uh, Argentinian people as well. 
they, they think with their heart and not with their head sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was actually an, uh, an occasion in which uh, the Copa America was playing in Argentina in 2011. And this was right after Messi had won the, the Champions League and the league with Barcelona, like at the peak of the Guardiola era. Like, we will probably never see a Messi as as brilliant as Messi, as brilliant as he was in that season. And he came back to Argentina to play at the Copa America. And that Argentina side was particularly poor. And uh, there was this occasion in which he played at his home province in Santa Fe. Again, I think it was against uh, against Colombia, I think, uh, which was, I think, a 1-1 draw. Uh, no, 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 it wasn't against Colombia. There was the quarterfinals against Uruguay, in which Argentina drew 1-1 and then lost some penalties. And the whole stadium actually jeered Messi throughout the whole game in his own province in Rosario, which is kind of, uh, yeah, significant. Yeah. Like yeah. it was it like there could be no turning points. And then then 12 years later, he goes on and wins the World Cup. It's a big everything statement to make at the time. And, and it's, it's, a perfect, it's a perfect circle. It's a perfect sort of redemption arc, if you like. It's the perfect way for him to to quieten all of those people who ever doubted him because he went through those ups and downs as Phil said he kind of really briefly retired in a sort of heat of the moment decision and then came back and, and showed everyone that he could do it again and it was just it, it was fantastic and, and it was absolutely incredible and I'm sure you know he will be very humbled at the next World Cup when Scotland win it and, and we managed to take the trophy and <laughs> uh, I, I can fucking only dream let's be honest never in my lifetime I don't think but you never know Um. Listen, this has been an absolutely fantastic chat tonight, Santi. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, we've all enjoyed ourselves. Uh, guys, have we got any other questions that we want to ask just before we finish yeah, up? I, I got one more question left for Santi. Go for uh, it. It's one of my favourite songs in Argentina. If I say to you, Rojo, mi buen amigo, what do you say? Esta campaña volveremos a estar contigo. Very good. <laughs> so actually, you know, Independiente actually have a kind of a different, but with different, uh, similar song, but with different lyrics, with that same tune, you know. Yeah. Sing it. It goes, Rojo, yo te percibo, gozo la sangre que a mí me mantiene vivo, cada domingo te vengo a ver, no importa si perdemos, yo voy a volver. Yeah, I really, I really need to get that course of Spanish down. <laughs> I'm chasing you. You are the blood that keeps me alive. Every Sunday I come to see you. Uh, it, does, it doesn't matter if we lose. I, I'm going to come back. Something like that. Imagine and me you, and you were already trying to sing that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you you do know, know uh, just for a finisher, you do know where it comes from, right? Um, no, no. Tell me, it's, I have to read it right now. It's actually a kitsch song written by Jorge Fidela. Oh, oh. Bobby, mi buen amigo. Oh, I mean, we did have a few songs like based on like political anthems and something like that, you know, the, like the Marcha Peronita and the Marcha Radical and something like that. But I didn't know it came from actually, you know, Videla. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but so now, yeah, now you know. So for any listener, look up Bobby, Mi Buen Amigo. Every uh, Argentinian side, they have this song like Rasting Mi Buen Amigo, Boca Mi Buen Amigo, Riba Mi Buen Amigo, uh, Independiente Mi Buen Amigo, you name it. They all have this song. So if you want a little history about that song, look up Bobby, Mi Buen Amigo. 
I'm going to do that straight after we finish recording the Sunday class. I like how you guys just had a wee sing song at the end there. That was lovely. <laughs> really nice way to really? finish things off. Um, but gents, thank you very much for joining me this evening. Santi, thank you very much for joining us all the way from uh, Buenos Aires. It's very much appreciated and we hope you've enjoyed your time and, and yeah, hope hope to have you back on the podcast at, at some other point as well to talk about other other clubs. It's been been great fun. Once again, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, I've also had a blast here, so it's been a pleasure, man. Yeah, no, that's lovely of you to say, mate. Thank you very much. Um, likewise, the feeling's absolutely mutual. Uh, and of course, great to see Vincent again and, and Phil. You know, this is our first episode of 2024 and, and, and what an episode to return to as well. So we'll have one more episode after this, which is going to focus on Gol FC of Canada. Hopefully get that out next week, maybe. Um, and then after that, we're going to be planning some um, extra episodes and, and and some more content for you guys to go alongside our rebrand. So we're, we're very much just going to be continuing things until we stop, really. And that could be whenever. So um, we've got lots planned over the next few weeks and months. So keep an eye out for everything that's going to be coming out on our Twitter page. And of course, you can follow us on Instagram and on YouTube as well. And as usual, you can hear this wherever you get your podcasts in the next episode after that. But for now, Phil, say goodnight. Good night, everyone. Vincent, say good night. Buenas noches. Santi, finally, say good night. Good night, guys. It's not, it's not night. It's not night time yet here, but well, good night. Yeah. Okay. Fair <laughs> <enough>. <laughs>